Welcome to the Minor Atlantis Immigration Update, the podcast that immigration professionals and foreign nationals turn to for up-to-the-minute information. It's time for another lightning round. With me today is Minor Immigration Associate Kristen Sisko and Minor Immigration Partner Lynn Walker to answer your questions sent to us via LinkedIn private message. Please be aware that all personal information is always kept in the strictest confidence at Minor and Landis. The identity and personal details of those asking the questions are never revealed. This week's lightning round is travel-themed in honor of the upcoming holidays. Lynn and Kristen will tackle questions such as, will the United States accept a combination of vaccines for travelers entering the U.S.? What are the exceptions for travelers being fully vaccinated? And what are the difficulties of traveling while your status is pending? What to look out for in general if you are a foreign national traveling anytime soon, and much more. So let me turn it over to Lynn and Kristen now for this week's lightning round. Hi, I'm Kristen Sisko, an associate at Minor Landis. I'm joined today by my colleague Lynn Walker for our lightning round Q&A. Now, during our lightning rounds, we try to answer as many of your questions as possible. As a reminder, please message us any employment-based or family-based immigration questions so we could try to answer them on our next round. As another reminder, please note that we keep all personal information confidential at Minor Landis, so we don't disclose the identity or personal details of those asking questions. For this round, we received quite a few travel questions. I think this may be in response to the upcoming rescission of the COVID-19 travel bans and perhaps with the holiday season coming around. We're also gonna have to pick up the pace a little bit, so bear with us so we can get as many questions in as possible. Now, Lynn, on October 25th, there was great news. The White House made a proclamation rescinding the COVID-19 travel restrictions. We have a few questions about that. The first question that came in was about mixing and matching vaccines. So mixing and matching, meaning when somebody receives the first dose of say AstraZeneca and then a second dose of Moderna, when somebody has this this pattern of mixing and matching, will the United States still qualify them as a fully vaccinated traveler for the purposes of entering the United States? Kristen, that's a great question. And um, right now we know that the CDC has issued a statement saying that they will in fact accept as proof of vaccination, someone who has a mixed vaccination status. So for example, as you were saying, maybe uh, Moderna for one vaccine and then the AstraZeneca for another. Uh, Based on the October 25th proclamation from the White House, we're still waiting for more clear guidance about um, exactly which vaccine mixes will be acceptable. For example, I mean, we're not sure yet, you know, if someone takes like their first shot of the only shot of Johnson and Johnson, and then if they take a shot of AstraZeneca, will they be considered fully vaccinated? Or, you know, is the fully vaccinated mixed vaccination status only applicable to those types of vaccines where there are uh, a round of two vaccines in a series? So we're still waiting for further clarification. That's helpful though, very helpful. The next question is a very broad question. Somebody wants to know about the exceptions for travelers being fully vaccinated. So what what exceptions there are? Maybe you could just kind of briefly outline and run through some of the more salient ones. 
Sure. I, we just want to point out that um, on October 25th, the White House did release a proclamation that was very lengthy. It was about 12 pages. And we wrote a client alert, which was published on Constant Contact, as well as LinkedIn, which lists in detail all of the individuals who are deemed to be exempted from the vaccination requirement. But because that list is so detailed, instead of going over each and every exemption here, we just wanna give you a, a summary of some of the more salient exemptions. Um, and because they are very specific, I'm going to read them to you instead of trying to memorize them and tell you what they mean or tell you what they are, excuse me. So some of the exceptions include uh, for individuals where the vaccine is not age appropriate. So we know, for example, that the CDC has, um, hasn't issued rules yet for vaccinations, for example, for children under five years of age. So children may not need the vaccinations in order to come to the US. Um, there's also language in the proclamation that says um, individuals whose period of intended stay is sufficiently brief will not need to be vaccinated. We don't really know what that means yet. The CDC director needs to issue defini a definition as to what is sufficiently brief. Does that mean 30 days? Does that mean three days? No one knows yet. Um, another exception is where the non-immigrant has participated or is participating in a COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial. Again, what type of clinical trial is accepted has to be defined by the CDC director. Um, Another exception is if the vaccine is medically contraindicated, again, as determined by the CDC director, we don't know what that means. Um, and the fifth exception, which is probably my least favorite, because again, it is not scientifically based, even though the White House is claiming that this is scientifically based, individuals who are coming into the US as crew members, so in C or D visa status, as well as foreign government officials, individuals traveling to the United States in A or G status, as well as individuals coming to the US in NATO one through four status and NATO six status. Those individuals on those visa classifications do not need to prove that they are vaccinated. So the fifth exception I'm taking some issue with because again, there, there's no scientific basis for the belief that individuals who enter the US in certain non-immigrant classifications are less susceptible to being infected by COVID-19. So there, there are probably political reasons or business reasons for those exceptions, but those are not scientifically based. Again, Kristen, the list is very long. I think there are at least 11 different exceptions to the vaccine requirements. If our listeners have um, more questions, they can review the client alert that we posted on LinkedIn. And if the client alert doesn't answer their questions, they are free to, of course, send us a private message on LinkedIn or schedule a consultation to discuss their, their specific situation, because each person is going to probably have some unique situation where they're not sure if they are exempted from the vaccine requirement or not. So continuing with our travel theme for this week, Kristen, we received a lot of questions 
about travel because of, we believe the upcoming holidays. And as you are probably aware, traveling during the holidays is always fraught with um, anxiety and is always very hectic. But I think this holiday season will be more so because of all of the changes in travel restrictions. So one of the questions that we got recently, and let me read this to you, was from a person who is currently in the US in F1 status. And they have a change of status pending based on an H-1B cap petition. Can they travel while this change of status petition is pending? So let me just kind of clarify, F-1 is student visa for some of our listeners that may be a little bit yes. confused with the alphabet of visas. Yes. Um, unfortunately, in this particular context, if you're changing your status and you travel while that change of status is pending, the change of status is going to be deemed abandoned. So that means the underlying petition, so for in this, in this case, the H-1B petition by the employer that can still be approved, but the actual change of status for the foreign national going from F1 to H1B, that's gonna be deemed abandoned if they leave the United States while it's still pending. They're gonna then have to process everything through the consulate and find an appointment, find a consulate that has appointments and be able to get their visa approval that way. So that's uh, quite a sticky situation. So. Based on that and what you've been hearing lately and with all the travel changes and restrictions being lifted, what's happening at the U.S. embassies? How easy is it right now for someone to get a visa appointment? It's a toss-up. So some of the embassies still aren't operating at a full capacity. Some haven't fully resumed services yet. Some are being inundated with still national interest exemptions Mm -hmm. from the travel ban. So they're still processing those There's a lot of people waiting for that November 8th deadline to then all of a sudden get their application in where they don't need the national interest exemption. So it's it's really difficult for people to get the appointments. And even if they go to a country, wait in that country for the appointment, there's no guarantee it's not going to be canceled last minute. Mm -hmm. I think just recently, even Sydney, Australia just canceled December appointments. Okay. And they're not rebooking them until well into 2022. So it's a bit of a gamble to go that route. Okay. So I, I guess what would be your recommendation right now if someone doesn't have to travel? I know we're all really eager to see our families. Mm-hmm. I know it's been a really long time, especially for foreign nationals in the United States that may have not seen their family since 2019 even. It's a risk. It's a risk. So we're advising clients to stay here unless it's you know medically necessary, unless there's some type of emergency. Okay. As long as they understand the risks, it's really risky. You're you could get trapped outside of the United States for who knows how long. Okay. That's that's great advice because people are I, I think starting to book travel yeah. arrangements. And um you have to, I guess, put into that equation. If you're working in the U.S., how long can you stay out of the U.S. and still keep your job, right? That that might be something you have to consider because if you're going to be stuck out for three months or four months, um, that's something you need to clear with your employer first, right? So changing the scenario a little bit, what if a person's change of status petition was approved? So let's say hypothetically you're that F1 student. And your H-1B 
has been approved with a start date of November 15th, but you'd like to leave the U.S. and go abroad December 28th. Let's say all things are starting to go back to normal. What would a person need to bring with them or what are the next steps if you're going to travel abroad and your H-1B change of status petition has been approved? So it's approved. You need the original approval notice. Chances are you're not going to have that visa stamp yet because it just got approved. You never made an appointment to get the visa stamp. So to get back into the United States, you're going to need a visa stamp. To get the visa stamp, you're going to need to make an appointment at the consulate or embassy abroad. Assuming all things go flawlessly and you're able to get that appointment and you're able to show up to that appointment, you need to make sure that you bring a valid passport with you for the length of your visa. So if you've got an H-1B that's valid for three years, your passport needs to be valid for the entire three years, the entire duration that you'll be in the United States. You need to bring your original approval notice with you because some of the embassies are requesting that original approval notice. Also an updated employment verification letter. So a letter from your employer saying, yes, this person's still currently employed, Um, They still work with us. This is their salary, all those particulars. And then their education credentials. So their diploma and their transcripts. Okay. So you mentioned that a person needs to make sure that their passport is still valid. Well, not just valid, obviously. You need a valid passport to get the visa, but it should be valid for the duration of your planned stay in the U.S. Why, Why is that important? So this is very important because immigration laws require foreign nationals to have passports valid for the duration of their stay in the U.S. Now, if a foreign national enters the United States with a passport, say that's valid to December 2022, but their visa is actually valid much longer, CBP will only admit them until the expiration date of their passport not the actual expiration date of their approval notice. So they may be cutting themselves short there where they're going to need to extend their status. And they may also not recognize that. So it may fall off their radar. They may not realize, oh, wait, my I-94 says a date different from my approval notice. There's also additional fees that the employer is going to need to pay to extend that status much earlier than otherwise. So That leads, I guess, to another really important question then. So what if my I-94 expires earlier? What's the problem with that, right? Because I have a visa that's good for three years and an approval notice that's good for three years. What's the issue with the I-94? So you're only admitted in the United States until the date on your I-94. So that is a very crucial date to be aware Mm -hmm. of and to constantly check. So if there's any mistakes in that date, you could get in trouble and you could inadvertently fall out of status. Okay. So that's a very important date. I'm glad you, you brought that up because a lot of times people enter the country and they don't realize there's a mistake on their I-94, something happens, they fall out of status. That's a problem. And I think that is something that all of our foreign national travelers need to keep in mind whenever they come to the U.S., um, you should really download and print your I-94. And if you are working in the U.S., you should share it with your HR manager. If you are working with an immigration professional, you should share it with the immigration professional because you need to make sure that you were admitted in the right classification 
and that you were admitted for the, the lawful period of stay, not a shortened period. So if you have any additional questions or concerns, um, or you have a unique situation that maybe we didn't cover in this lightning round, please feel free to private message Kristen and I. Again, your information remains confidential. If it is a question that we can answer very briefly, we will do so. And then we will share the information, obviously not your name and details, but share the question and the answer in our next light, lightning round. Um, but if it's something that requires a lot more in-depth time and research, we would advise you to schedule a consultation to make sure that we are able to cover all of the issues that are pertinent to your case. And if some type of legal strategy or um, legal effort needs to be implemented, we can do so, or at least recommend what that is. So thank you once again, and please feel free to follow us on LinkedIn and also to download our podcast, which is available on your favorite app by searching Minor and Landis. Thank you. Disclaimer. The information contained herein is intended only for educational or informational purposes and is not a substitute for legal advice. Further, listening to this HR tip in no way establishes an attorney-client relationship between you and Minor and Landis LLP. Listeners should consult legal counsel for definitive advice regarding the current law and regulations and how those apply to your unique situation within your organization.